Hello and welcome to episode 145 of The Winning Agenda. My name is Jesse Marshall and joining me tonight is 2017 world champion, 2017 regionals top four competitor, 2017 store champion, 2016 national champion, 2016 world's top 16 competitor, 2016 store champion, 2015 regional champion and four-time Magic the Gathering pro tour competitor, Wilfred E. Horrig. How are you, Wilfie? Wow, and all that and you couldn't even mention my multiple Haas Byride Employee of the Month awards. Nor did I mention your Haas Byride Employee of the Year for last year. I'm so sorry. Yes, thank you. That's the most important one of all. And I am uh, 2017 Regional Champion, 2016 Nationals Runner-Up to the Haas Byroad Employee of the Year, who else? Uh, 2016 World 17th Place, 2016 Regional Champion, 2016 Store Champion, 2014 National Champion, 2014 World Top 16 Competitor, 2014 Regional Champion, and 2014 Store Champion, Jesse Marshall. Um, welcome back to the Winning Agenda, and thank you for the inspiration from our listeners in bringing back our intros. We had one very special listener. You know who you are. Um, we may or may not uh, share a name slash a nickname uh, who sent in a message saying that his favourite thing about the show and his most enduring memory is the wonderful intros. Um, so we had to resurrect them just for you, Spags. So thanks for that message. Yeah, and we spent a fair bit of time thinking about what we were going to say, dredging up our memories from... Can you even remember what was going on in 2014? Uh, it was a long time ago. It was. I mean, 2013. I think I even might be a 2013 Regionals Top 4 competitor, because I remember the Regionals had five players. <laughs> you were better than one person. Yes. Well, maybe. I'm not quite sure. Maybe one person <laughs> had to drop it. It was the Wild West. <laughs> do you remember what decks you played? Yeah, I do. I played a game deck. And they played a Haas Byroid Engineering the Future deck. Oh, I shouldn't have even asked. Yeah, for the first three years, those were the only decks I, uh, the only factions I played. And yeah, I, the only thing I really remember about 2014 was that uh, at Nats I went to a football game in the middle of the cut because my team was playing in the finals, and um, regionals was in Adelaide that I won. What what happened at that regionals? Oh well, um, I went with the Swamp King, in fact, and uh, we drove to Adelaide, which is about an eight and a half hour drive from where we live in Melbourne. Uh, so my car was very swampy by the time we got there. Um, but yeah, we had a good time. Me and the Swamp King did a bit of testing, played the tournament, and I, yeah, got one of my favourite kills of all time, I think. Which was? Uh, yeah. I just thought I'd get, let you get in there with the question. Oh, know, okay. The interaction. Um, which was a, as you know, Wilfie, at the time, of course. my favourite card to splash into my NBN decks was Shinobi. And I think it was a turn two or a turn three kill in the cut. Uh, one of our most loyal and long-standing listeners, Damien O'Day, can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was, yeah, turn two or turn three against, I'm pretty sure it was his Ken deck, got the kill with the Shinobi, so that was good fun. Did you get killed by a shinobi at some point? No, no. Oh, that's right. No, it was at, a, at regionals that year, I think. That was another one of my memories. Someone... I had the RSVP shinobi combo going on, which, for those of you who haven't encountered this uh, piece of deck-building genius, um, the synergy is that RSVP stops your opponent from spending credits, so then if they run into your shinobi, you win all the traces and you deal them a lethal amount of net damage. Um, hopefully. What this requires is that they don't have a sentry or a code gate breaker, um, or really don't have a code gate breaker, most importantly, um, and that after they encounter your RSVP, they don't jack out in the next window. Um, so, uh, and that you have 10 credits, obviously, to res these cards. I think it's 10 or is it 11? No, it's 10. RSVP is 3 to res them. Anyway, um, so I had this thing set up on one of my centrals, and my opponent at regionals ran that server, and they didn't have the code gate breaker, and they counted the RSVP, and they put their fist on their chin and rested their head on it, had a think, went into the tank, thought for a while, looked up at me and said, ah, what's the worst that can happen? And then continued, and I rest the Shinobi. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, one of my all-time favourite netrunner memories. Yes, and uh, you've never been the same again. No, it's never quite been as good as that. Uh, although you did have a what's the worst that can happen episode once, didn't you? Oh, it happens to me all the time. I really can't remember... Like, everything at this point. I think I've uh, 
face planted into basically every <laughs> trap that can occur. I was reading on Stim Slack that people were even talking about Kitsune, which is a two cost ice where you get to pick a card that they access. That's all the ice does. And uh, I've definitely died to that more than once. If you can yeah. imagine that. The old Kitsune into snare mm-hmm. sort of scenario. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Well, today, um, as you would know, because you've probably, by the time you're listening to this, read the description of the episode, we are going to be talking about the first pack that's been released for how many months, Wilfie? Do you reckon? How many months since we've had new cards introduced to the card? Yeah, so if we don't count the Corset 2.0, which is sort of unfair to not count it since it's a real-life FAG product, but it is also an all-reprint set, so... I think maybe uh, four months, five months, if you go by American schedules. Yeah, so it's been quite a while, and it, I guess that is a really long time when you're used to products being released sort of every month. We had another gap like that. At the end of Cycles, we tend to have a bit of a gap. We had quite a long one uh, before Data of Destiny was released, but it's certainly been good to have these new cards, and so we're going to run you through the run aside today. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, we have a very special segment, and 145 episodes in, this is a first for us, so we hope you enjoy it and bear with us. Uh, we are going to be opening up the Blast Zone, uh, and for those of you who aren't aware, there is a secret podcast whose name shall not be mentioned. You can't even say that it's secret. Surely it's the first rule that you don't talk about it. We heard it on, you know, the... It's like daily casts in the flavour is like an underground, like, thing, right? Yeah, but we're putting them on the on blast, so, like, we have to mention them. Yeah, I suppose we can't exactly put, like, someone... We, we can't mention them, but we're going to put them on blast anyway. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. So we're putting them on blast, and we have beef with them, um, and uh, they are the first target of our blast zone today, and the reason is that they put the whole of Australia in the blast zone. Yeah, all twen- 25 million people, or whatever it is. Yeah, and it, sort of the context was they were talking about Worlds, and this was their post-Worlds episode, and they were talking about, you know, uh, the winners and losers, and, and the people who deserve to be in the blast zone after Worlds, and really, Team Australia, you know, we did pretty well. What do you, what do you think, Wilfie? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, we've said in our... A few of our post worlds episodes that I think we would have done better than any other year before, definitely. Yeah, so we, we had a winner, and really, I think over time, whenever we've gone, our team's wrapped pretty well. Yeah. We've had someone get into the top 16 every year, and that's only been like out of two or three people uh-huh. in our team each time. So. Firstly, on our performance, we didn't think we deserved to be in the Blast Zone. Uh, but then, really, what that segment turned into, and, and what we have the biggest beef with, is the lies that accompanied it. Now, now, first of all, there was a a parable that was told, if you will, about Wilfie's participation or membership of Team Cat. And that's fine. Are you in Team Cat, Wilfie? I am Team Cat, a loyal, loyal member of the feline contingent, I would say. And I believe it was mentioned that Team Cat has a far better showing in terms of world's victories than Team Dog, so we'll let you decide where the causation lies there. Yeah, so we don't have a problem with the labelling of Wolfie as a member of Team Cat, because he is a member, and and that's fine, and people are... we're happy for people to talk about that, and to talk about the record of Team Cat versus Team Dog, that's all fair game. But it was... the story that accompanied it that I found a little bit strange, which was that this member of this podcast that shall not be named was apparently sitting next to you at, at Worlds in one of the early rounds, Wilfie. And he witnessed you, allegedly, uh, your opponent sitting down opposite you and saying, excuse me, would you mind if I put this on the table? A- and this was some kind of lucky gonk of some kind. And uh, without replying verbally, allegedly, you waited a moment, slowly reached your hand across the table and pushed this object onto the floor. Now, did this happen? Well, we're not going to say it didn't happen, but given the mythology surrounding it, I really want the listeners to draw their own conclusions about whether such a loyal member of Team Cat as myself would reply in such a way. 
That's interesting. And look, we'll leave that part of it there, and our listeners can draw the conclusions that they like from that, but I think they can probably deduce from the fact that we included that in our Blast Zone segment what the answer is. Um, the second story that accompanied this uh, blasting of Team Australia was that allegedly when I was at the airport on the way leaving uh, Minneapolis that evening afterwards, um, or the next day rather, uh, I ran into one of this member of this podcast that shall not be named, and we said hi to each other, pleasantly, uh, but his recollection of it seemed to be that I'd given him the cold shoulder in some way. Now, my recollection of it was that he was literally running past, stopped and said hi, and then kept running. Um, now, in America, maybe that is giving someone the cold shoulder, if you allow them to keep running when they're apparently running to catch their plane or something. Um, but in Australia, that's just sort of like politeness, that you don't sort of trip them over and force them to be in your presence for longer than they apparently want to be. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Wilfie? To interact with you while they're in a hurry? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, apologies to this person uh, if they wanted me to, like, crash tackle them and force them to be in my presence. Um, just send us a message and let us know if that's what you were saying. That, uh, But certainly there was some kind of uh, cultural misunderstanding there, and I don't think that it warranted uh, putting us in the blast zone. Uh, but while we're there, um, and just in case there's any kind of uh, denial uh, that this was what took place or any kind of twisting of the facts, um, I just wanted to put something out there for our listeners to consider, and that is that this member of the podcast that shall not be named is an American, and the American president just today, as we're recording, has released his fake news awards. Um, and... A lot of people have remarked that at the moment we're living in sort of a post-truth world in, in America, um, that it's it's an age where the truth has gone out the window um, and you just sort of make your own reality. And certainly the president seems to be leading the charge on that. Whereas in Australia, for years, our national broadcaster has had a unit called the fact-checking unit, which which literally takes statements by public figures like politicians subjects them to independent scrutiny as to whether they're factual, and they produce like a really long research memo and then a rating as to whether something's like factual or a complete fabrication or it's a twisting of the truth or it's an exaggeration. And that's the sort of culture of truth that we live in over here. So my, my question to you, dear listeners, just in anticipation of denials and obfuscation, um, is who would you trust? Who would you trust? And I'll leave it there. Um, the next target for our uh, blast zone, very briefly, is uh, Josh One, a well-known community member and slacker, um, which is meant uh, in terms of the app, not in terms of his uh, aptitude for work. Um, but Josh has some very strong opinions about Netrunner. Well, I think that's undeniable, isn't it? Definitely undeniable, although I do note that you mentioned him by name, and I thought that we were not mentioning people who were putting in the blast zone. Oh, no, 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 we're just not mentioning the podcast that doesn't wish to be named. Oh, yeah, okay. We're honouring their wishes, if you will. Yeah. Um, Josh was happy to be named. Um, Presumably. No, no, I, I told him he's going on blast, um, and he said that um, he understood. He understood. Because his statement was controversial for me, and I think considering our opinion on this subject that we've expressed many times on this podcast for us, uh, and that is that he said, we were talking about um, the worst design cards in Netrunner history, and I was saying that I thought Astro was overpowered, um, but an example of something that's good to have in the game, which is a really strong threat on an agenda that doesn't put the cop too far behind if they score it, but that I thought some of the worst design cards in the game were the politicals, the political assets, um, Sensi Actors Union, etc., and Josh replied and said, I like the politicals a lot, and I hate Astro, and I'm pretty firm on both of those. How do you feel about that, Wilfie? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot in the past, and we'll talk about it again, that I don't really think Astro is especially poorly designed. I just think that it was probably not understood by the designers how good it was going to be when it was good, or like when it was printed. And the game, there's been so much development from the time that it was printed to even the time where it was errated to now, which is the time where you can't play it anymore, that blaming the state of Netrunner on Astro at any of those points is, I think, a bit uh, absurd. Whereas the politicals, I think they have 
have had no excuse, no similar excuse of the lack of design thought or that the game was in when the politicals were printed. And would you like to see um, Sensi Actors Union back in the game? Mm, I'm going to go with no. Okay, so th- that would be another reason um, to put Josh on blast for saying, nah, I like Sensi a lot. Yeah, I would say that's probably pretty reasonable. So there you go. Um, thanks to Josh and uh, He Who Shall Not Be Named from the podcast that shall not be named uh, for being our first and possibly only Blast Zone targets. Um, moving on now to the main topic of today, Wolfie, which is the first pack in the guitar cycle, Sovereign Size. Yeah, I was just going to say, I would say first, uh, if you like the idea of the Blast Zone and you want to hear more of it, then let us know. And we're, I'm sure we can fabricate some people to put on Blast. Yeah, and um, if you would like to yeah, give us any feedback about it, we'd love to hear it, uh, as with most things we do. Um, did you want to add anything else? Oh, no, that's it. I think we can yeah, start the strategic content now, if, if the listeners would be happy with that. Okay, um, maybe we'll give people a, a moment's pause uh, while we move on from what we've just had, um, which is mostly trash, to, to the more serious business. Alright, that's long enough. Good. Uh, I feel refreshed, so by any means, Wilfie, it's a, a two-cost event priority sabotage. Play only as a first click. Until this turn ends, whenever you access a card not in archives, trash it at no cost, even if it cannot normally be trashed, and suffer one meat damage. It's a five-influence Anarch event. It's a priority, and I, before um, we get your thoughts on it, Wilfie, I think it's worth pointing out, because it's not immediately obvious from reading this, that uh, the runner can trash corp cards that trigger on runner access, so that's ambushes, archangel, etc., um, before they trigger, and just suffer the one meat damage from this card instead of the penalty of that card. So this is, I think, the first chance that the runners had realistically in the history of the game to run on a June bug and deal with it other than Singularity, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange wording because... It's not like Imp or Demolition Run, right? That's the point, that it's in the film critic window instead. So how do you... Or what do you think of this card, firstly? Yeah, so I think probably to compare it to Imp and Demolition Run makes the most sense, since it's a two-cost card that potentially can trash more than one card that ordinarily couldn't be trashed. But it has a couple key differences, the first being that you can use it on remotes, unlike demolition run and I think that's where people seem to be the most thrilled about it but also that you can play it and then use another run event in concert with it like legwork, information sifting or counter surveillance I've seen all those cards be mentioned as a possible pairing so I think in terms of the effectiveness of that specifically to use it with multi-access, I'm not so sure, just because of a couple things. One, it's a priority, so it sort of clashes with Mars for Martians if you're going down the counter-surveillance route, and it's just a bit difficult to fit into your turn when you're doing the big runs, or when you're planning to access multiple cards. And also, the one meat damage means that you need to have a way to mitigate this, if it's going to be effective, at actually doing what you want, which is I think, to let you see more cards than you normally would. So it's sort of half an imp and half a demolition run, I think, but a lot worse than either of those two at doing what you want them to do. Whether that makes it good enough to see play, I'm not sure about yet. So whenever you access a card, you must trash it at no cost. It's not optional. Mm Mm-hmm. And you must suffer one de- meat damage, so you suffer one meat damage for each card that's trashed, is that right? Yeah, so it's sort of like you can't tra- you can't score agendas with it, but you can use it to trash multiple things in remotes, which is something that Imp notably can't do. Whether it'll see play, I think, depends on whether the narrow state in which you really want a card like this that can do multiple things in terms of trashing but not very efficiently more than Imp, which is a lot better at fitting into a regular game plan, but doesn't let you trash a bunch of cards in one turn, 
whether that trade-off turns out to be worth it. I feel like with um, Mercs and Paparazzi in the card pool, there could be something degenerate here. Like, it seems risky to me to have this card apply till the end of the turn, meaning that the run... Rather than it being a run in itself. Like, if this was a run event that did this, that costs zero, it would be a lot safer than something that gives the runner three more clicks to be able to use other click-based multi-access, whether it's events or things like counter-surveillance. And then if they can get around the one meat damage, they can trash a lot of cards. Yeah, I think they've definitely made it a bit riskier by making it somewhat unbounded and the meat damage, especially, as you said, with Mercs, Paparazzi, there are ample ways to deal with taking meat damage if this is your sole game plan. The question is whether having it be your primary plan to counter play this counter-surveillance and run again, or just to counter-surveillance in general, like you don't necessarily need this, by, but having this actually boosts the number of cards that you access, whether that's worth the slightly clunky play pattern of this card in a regular state, where you don't have the resources to necessarily get in twice to a big server. Hmm. Very interesting. It'll be one to keep an eye on. I am, as always, concerned by uh, things that are slightly unbounded. I acknowledge that having the one meat damage means that the runner needs to have another piece in Paparazzi or, or Mercs to make the com- any sort of combo work, and that the advantage you gain compared to the existing God of War counter-surveillance combo is only realised if you're going to be running again shortly, and you're seeing additional cards additional cards for each non-agenda that you've trashed because you otherwise would have just stolen the agenda cards and so you'd be seeing replacements for those anyway yeah so yeah the way i say it is it sort of superpowers that strategy when that strategy is already possibly too big like counter surveillance the problem is not usually that you don't see enough cards it's that you don't do so fast enough or that you don't do so in a way that also lets you interact with your opponent's game plan but then again, this does mitigate that to some extent by allowing you to use it at least to interact with your opponent, which normally multi-access cards like this or pseudo-multi-access cards like this can't do. Hmm. Hmm, interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, the next card in the pack is Yusuf, a one-cost, two-memory Anarch program, Icebreaker Fractor Virus. It's two influence, and it says, whenever you make a successful run you may place one virus counter on Yusuf. Virus counter from any installed card, break barrier subroutine, and virus counter from any installed card, plus one strength. So this appears to be, we can assume, one of a suite of cards, whether or not it's a suite of breakers with exactly the same abilities, um, it seems to be part of a suite of cards that are going to rely on virus counters because it references other installed cards. So presumably we're going to see a few more virus counter related cards. Yeah, exactly. And we have already seen the identity, the Anarch identity in a future pack of this cycle that allows you to use virus counters from any of your cards. So yeah, it's sort of the noise for a new era, I suppose. And that's uh, Freedom Kamalu. Is that right? Freedom Uh, Kamalu. Yeah, that's the one, I believe. Yeah. Uh, And Freedom Kamalu says... uh, Once per turn, you you may remove X virus counters from your installed cards to trash a card that you access at no cost, even if it cannot normally be trashed, X is the card's res or play cost. Yeah, exactly. So an- another virus counter um, using card, another virus counter spender, if you like. Yeah, so that's, I think, yeah, taking this card in a vacuum, if this were the only way to generate virus counters, it would be fairly inefficient, like, not only compared to Paperclip, but just on its own, because... Spending a virus counter to get plus one strength is fairly bad. Like, spending a virus counter to break a subroutine is okay, but then requiring virus counters in order to do either of those things, like not being able to use credits at all, means that it sort of doesn't really work with your regular suite of economy cards, so you really have to take into account the context of playing it in the virus deck and I don't know if we know exactly what that's going to look like right now so I feel like perhaps we can't give this card 
the context that it really requires but I suppose mm. that's for now I say to shelve this one if because the advantage of generating virus counters on successful runs sort of the half of the data sucker ability of this card isn't currently being used for any useful purpose and this it just has this which is a fairly inefficient payoff so it has the generation at a reasonable rate but the payoff at a very bad rate I think even if you consider it in concert with data sucker I mean I know that this is sort of already got data suckers ability on it in terms of being able to spend virus counters to give this plus one strength is pretty much the same as data sucker being able to reduce strength for most intents and purposes um, but data sucker and this both being able to generate virus counters which this card can use for either of its abilities could be useful yeah possibly yeah multiple successful run triggers are good i guess yeah of course i just think that at the moment the two memory is very prohibitive for that if True. you're going to also be required to have a code gate breaker and a sentry breaker of which at the moment you can't play any of those that interact with viruses in the same way that this does mm. so perhaps if freedom kamalu's freedom kumalo's ability turns out to be something that you want and you want to go virus heavy maybe this is a card that you want Yep. to both feed, feed your Freedom Kamalo and, and use whatever other synergies we see for that strategy. But um, outside of that, um, so in a vacuum, I think you're right, it's not efficient enough at generating its own economy. I, you know, Icebreakers that use different things other than credits as their economy can be really powerful. We've seen that with Faust. Um particularly where, like this, it generates that economy in and of itself. I guess the thing we haven't quite touched on is purging and how that could affect this sort of strategy. What do you think of that as a threat? Yeah, so it's a bit hard to evaluate right now just because, as I said, we don't have the cards that would probably pair with this, but mm. usually with something like Data Sucker, you want to diversify the ways that you can get into a server so that they can't purge to lock you out. That's probably the one thing that's made Amakua not just an absurd card is that you actually have a counterplay against it of allowing, never letting your opponent get into a server where they can put counters on it and then purging because the Amakua snowballs off itself and this card has a similar principle. Um, so the rather than something like Faust, where you have inherent access as the runner to the resource that you need to feed it, um, the corp can actually conceivably deny you this resource or take it away from you at instant speed with CVS, which makes it a bit more risky. Yes, that's true. Cool. Interesting to see how that cycle and strategy develops. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it's a... Uh sort of take of Anarch that we haven't had for a while especially since the Conspiracy Breakers have been so ubiquitous as the generic Breaker Suite in Anarch aside from God of War we haven't really seen anything else recently so yeah I'd be really interested to see if this kind of thing can take off just because of the different cost to benefit ratio that it provides hmm. the next card in the pack is Zamba, it's a four-cost criminal hardware console, three influence. It gives plus two memory, which is pretty good for a four-cost console. Uh, whenever a corp card is exposed, you may gain a credit. Limit one console per player. So, Wilfie, this is a whenever ability that's not limited to once per turn, and it gains the runner credits. That's pretty good on the face of it. Question is, how much exposing can we do? Yeah, so there's a couple things with this card. The first is, I'm sure everyone's heard about the the kerfuffle about GPR NetTap, you know, how GPR NetTap, this, and Almacua, and Rubicon Switch, and Los, like, if you can conceive of those cards working together, I suppose they all sort of do the same thing, but none of those, apart from Almacua, are very good on their own, but that combo is like 
the new Au Revoir, which I don't really remember many people having success with in the large time period when it was legal, but that comparison seems the most accurate in that you get a lot of cards that individually don't do a lot, but together allow you to generate a huge number of credits per click. So mm-hmm. that's the I think the first use case, and the second is to just play it in as a regular criminal console. As we know, criminals are not exactly blessed with a wealth of good consoles, and to just play it with perhaps incidental expose effects and Outmakua, which also wants incidental expose effects, and to sort of use it as a pseudo-desperado in that it gives you some click compression over the course of the game with a relatively strong alternate ability, as you said, of being four cost for two memory. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, next card in the pack is Puffer. It's a four cost, one memory criminal program, Icebreaker Killer. It's four influence, two strength, and it says one credit to break a sentry subroutine, two credits for plus one strength, click place one power counter on Puffer, or remove one power counter from Puffer, and Puffer's strength and memory and memory cost are increased by one for each power counter on it. So conceivably, let's think about this as a two-memory program for a minute that's three strength. That's one credit to break sentry subroutines and has an expensive pump. That's pretty i mean in some ways it's difficult to justify considering that you know mimic is the gold standard in terms of lower end sentry breakers of three to install one to break subroutines so would you pay slightly more for mimic plus an extra memory in order to have the ability to pump for two yeah i would say it's also an extra click to boost it yep. strength if you need that like I kind of feel like the memory thing is a bit inconsequential because usually you can work out how much memory you're going to need in a given game and then what sort of strength you want your puffer to be and expand or contract it or expand it really as you desire. Like, I think that is an interesting ability to have on an icebreaker to say if I'm very likely to need to break Ichi 1s, for example, I can just boost it to 4, and if that can save me installing another breaker because of the latent efficiency of that, then I've saved quite a few resources in doing that, as opposed to installing, for example, two Mon Geese or a Femme to get past a Big Ice or something like that. But then again, Criminal just has an identity problem at the moment, and like, I know it's not this card's problem, but it's this card also isn't the solution. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think we've spoken a lot of times about liking to see different abilities on Icebreakers, because, you know, Icebreakers are, have been pretty limited in terms of the design space that they've explored, and as you say, having something like this looks like a very small ability, um, but the impact that it can have on how the card plays throughout the game is quite significant because Icebreakers are such important cards in runner decks. Um, and, you know, like you say, uh, conceivably having the ability to be flexible enough to break whatever ice you expect to see, within reason, um, plus having the ability to prevent blowouts by having an admittedly expensive pump ability, but one that you can use to stop a blowout, um, makes this potentially quite a flexible breaker um, that you can adapt to suit the ice you're facing uh, if you need to. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering whether the various costs together are possibly just a little bit too much. Uh, but I guess, yeah, well, I mean, you know, with a two-memory console that we've just reviewed that has a relevant ability, uh, maybe this is the sort of place that you would like to be spending some of that memory. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely think it's an interesting ability. Whether this card has the right numbers for it, I'm not sure, but... It's definitely the sort of thing, yeah, that we want to see in Breakers, where, yeah, you can adjust them as you like. It's sort of a cross between a fixed Breaker, like a Mimic and Atman. So that's a good design place to be in, I think. And I'd be interested to see if 
criminal has two other like a code gate and a barrier breaker that have similar abilities and how those might interact together in one deck mm. yeah interesting uh now one, one last question on puffer when i think puffer i think either like bird or fish but to me that looks like a snake does it thoughts I, I don't know what do you think i'm no flavor expert but yeah those eyes in the background like is that what's going on in the background Oh, do you, do you hard know to the, say. The red. They look like eyes to me, but I know there are more. More. I think them. they're just shards, aren't they? Oh, okay. Anyway, I'm yeah. really uh, not the expert on flavor, but if anyone has any opinions on what puffer is or is meant to represent, especially if you are Andreas Zafiratos, then please yes. g- give us a call. Especially you, Andreas. Um. The next card in the pack is Louis Guilherme. Apologies to our French listeners for that butchering of pronunciation. Uh, it's a criminal resource connection. Zero to install, four uh, influence again. Um, when your turn begins, either lose one credit or trash Louis Guilherme. Uh, the corpse maximum hand size is reduced by one. I mean, this is something we've seen on Cybernetics Division, applying to both sides. I'm not sure that it's something we've really seen... Oh, there's that current that does it for each bad publicity, and that was that called? Itinerant protesters. Yeah, it's an interesting card, I think, but I'm not really sure where it fits. That's not really an ability I've thought about being able to build a deck around as the runner, just because as you add more, sure, it does disrupt the corp to some extent, but usually the cost you have to pay to do it is much higher than the detriment that the corp faces for you making that your primary game plan it's a reasonably significant change though isn't it like five to four is pretty different odds on hitting any given card in hq yes that's definitely true but how best i suppose are you going to build your deck to take advantage of this card that's sort of what i'm drawing a blank on whether you can use it in just a regular criminal deck. It doesn't seem like it because of like losing one each turn to for something that isn't necessarily going to give you an advantage every turn is a fairly steep cost. In in a post Jackson world though, HQ space is more valuable to corpse to hide agendas. Yes, to some extent. Yeah, def- that's definitely true. That. You can squeeze the corp a lot easier now that they don't exactly have Jackson to allow them to float cards and archives more easily. But I just think this, unless you're really pushing this effect as the runner, this doesn't do that much to the corp past what natural accesses do, which makes it hard for them to keep cards in hand that don't that aren't giving them advantage immediately. Like usually to get agendas out of your hand you already have to have a plan to either recycle them through archives or to score them it this changes the effect of that somewhat but it not in a way that's dramatically different to the regular runner tools i think of just being able to access cards in an effective way and i guess the difficulty for any strategy that becomes too hq centric is that the Corp can conceivably adjust to playing out of R&D in a remote. HQ doesn't have to be a relevant server if they can lock you out of a remote um, and just install whatever relevant agenda or other card they draw into the remote. Uh, So you'd need to pair this with a deck that could conceivably get into uh, whatever remote the Corp's going to build in the time that you're pressuring their HQ. Exactly, and I think the steep cost of this ability sort of prevents you from doing that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see um, if there's anything else that synergizes a little more directly with it, because I think you're right, the the drawback looks like it'll probably mean that the disadvantage to you, not only of having this card in play, but, you know, obvious opportunity cost of having it in your deck, etc, etc, mean that it might not be quite enough. Although I do want to see the 
deck like there's got to be a deck at some point that just gets the corp down to zero cards and then they have the, you know the magical christmas land is that they just have to draw and discard every turn right yeah or draw and install oh well sure oh well uh, no pro- like if you're really thinking about going deep you imagine the corp drawing getting really confused and then you know drawing to try and find a way out of this, this the situation right I really just don't like imagining being stuck in horrible locks, but I mean, sure. If that gives you kind of, some kind of uh, you know sadistic pleasure, that's that's all power to you. Um, Cyberdelia is the next card in the pack. It's a three to play hardware chip. It has it's three influence. It's a shaper card. It gives you plus one memory, and the first time you break all subroutines on a piece of ice each turn you may gain one credit. Uh, this is probably the worst card I've ever seen. What do you think? The worst card you've ever seen? Like No, no, I'm kidding. I, I'm only saying that um, because uh, we both know someone who really likes this card. <laughs> oh, do we? It's just a joke. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I actually considered taking it in the snake draft that I did. Like, it's okay. It's just a little inefficient, I think, and it's hard to get into a situation where you're both getting into a sort of a value each turn and also triggering the ability. I suppose it's sort of the problem where if they have an ice that's really susceptible to this, unless you have like all your breakers, lots of stealth breakers, etc., it's they can always just trash that ice if there's one server that's really bleeding because of this, but I think the two abilities do sort of synergize together because you know, this lets you install more cloaks, etc., and just more cards that you want in your rig while also giving you a benefit when you use those cards for value. Hmm. The issue, I think, with this is that um, Shapers already have a pseudo-desperado effect that rewards you for making runs and breaking ice in Netmoker, and it's Netmoker is already on the fringe of playability because it's a bit clunky, um, and it's certainly not extremely strong and meta-defining. And I mean, not that every card has to be extremely strong and meta-defining to be played in decks, uh, but in, in terms of whether this is the effect that shapers need to push them and push that sort of spoke strategy to top tier, considering they've already got Netmerker and, and it's already hard to fit three Netmerkers in your deck, I, I'm not sure that it is. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I think those two cards do work well enough together that if there's something that allows you to take advantage of having those kind of make runs use your recurring credits to generate advantage rather than need a lot of setup time, don't do anything while the corp just builds their board and eventually you can't get in, which is sort of how smoke works now if that does turn to some extent, I could definitely see this card being playable yeah, I guess part of the problem for Smoke is that you struggle to... When the corp forces you to need credits at particular points in the game, you just don't have them. Yes, and this card definitely doesn't help with that. So from that perspective, yeah, it's not its time, but I could see it being playable if that changes, as I said, potentially in the future. True. Yeah, so if if, um, uh, if the metagame slows down to the point that you can afford to just eke out resources over a long period of time, this does it reasonably efficiently. Yeah. Uh, the next shaper card in the pack is the front cover of the pack, and it's Upia. It's a program, install zero, memory one, three influence. It says whenever you make a successful run on R&D, you may place one power counter on Upia. That's a nice ability, I wonder what I can use these power counters for. Click and three hosted power counters gain two clicks. Use this ability only once per turn. So every three successful runs that you make on R&D, Wilfie, you get an all-nighter. Yeah, that that comparison really makes me not want to put this card in my deck. When I think about cards that are on the, you know, topmost tier of playability I don't think of all-nighter and I certainly don't see a card that you need to work at fairly hard to be better than all-nighter like you need to run R&D at a bare minimum six times successfully if you don't count any other factors to make this yeah just better than all-nighter 
at all means that I can't see it. Although, of course, someone will say that you can stack, you know, three of them and then hyperdriver, etc. And then probably there's some combo there with encore. So you know, it's I'll let someone else find that sort of combo if it is there. But for the time being, I'm not super optimistic. Yeah, possibly another. It's either another degenerate combo piece or a piece of trash. Yeah, that probably sums it up. The next card in the pack, and I think it's the last runner card it is, uh, it's an Apex card, Mini Faction. Um, five to install, resource virtual, five influence. It's called Assimilator. And it looks like some kind of large. It's either. It's reminiscent of, firstly, a star, secondly, a Death Star. And thirdly, the little training thing on the Millennium Falcon that Luke uses to train his lightsaber training. But anyway, um, whatever it may be, any of those three, uh, it has an ability that says two clicks, turn one of your face-down installed cards face up. If that card is an event, trash it. Firstly, before we get to the effect, do abilities that cost two clicks always have a comma between the clicks? Because that looks Um, a bit strange to me. Yeah, it does look strange to me too, I suppose we can we'll investigate hey, listeners tell us tell us what you think um and post screenshots please uh on our uh, facebook or whatever else and we can uh, have a great discussion about whether that is a, an emoji or a new development deliberate or uh, it's always been that way anyway so turning one of your face down install cards face up is a good ability um in a faction that wants to play cards like apocalypse or use apex's natural ability and then if it wants the cards that it's installed face down, it can have them. Seems kind of good. Yeah. So it kind of... like Apex's natural ability, I've always thought, is pretty bad because um, you're foregoing things... Like, the early turns is when you want to be using Apex's ability, uh, but at that point in the game, you have the least information about which cards in your hand are going to be useful. So you're essentially making a decision to permanently, most of the time, uh, lose cards from your hand, at least for several turns into the future until you, you know, trash them to one of your cards and levy them back or whatever, um, when you don't know if you'll need them or not, whereas a simulator lets you get them back if you need them, as long as they're not events. Yeah. So that is definitely... A strong ability and I do see how that could be useful but I sort of felt like and I'm no Apex expert I will admit I'm not admitting to being very much of an expert had much we know, today we do know the best Apex player in the world though do we? the Apex Apex yeah the the winner of the best Apex at Worlds 2017 Jordo uh, Moon Princess Jordo congratulations so perhaps we'll ask Jordo. But anyway, um, your, your view first. Yeah, yeah, so my view is that, I suppose, as Apex, you yeah, it does get around that in the sense that you can place cards early and then turn them up face t- turn them face up later on in the game. But I feel like the cost is high enough that you really need to have a game plan for doing that. You can't really incidentally just play a regular Apex deck and then put this card in it just because of... Is it that higher cost though? Because like you get to turn the face up for free so you get you don't pay the install cost of the cards. You just pay two clicks plus I mean a simulator's install cost is reasonably high admittedly but... That's true but what sort of things would you normally turn face like place face down in an Apex deck if you're not planning to use them to sell immediately to something like Pawn Chop or Chop Butt? Or heartbeat. So the first thing is non-virtual resources. So this is the first Apex card that allows you to actually get non-virtual resources into play in Apex, um, which I should have mentioned at the start, but I forgot. Um, and the second is, uh, you know, you can turn icebreakers or whatever face up in the mid-game, which tend to be the cards that cost a little more to install. Yeah, so that does make sense to some extent but I still feel like what icebreakers like yeah of course you can build your deck around this and I do think it is going to be strong in Apex just because having this sort of extremely unique effect that does tie into Apex's core ability 
has to go somewhere just because of how innately tied Apex is to utilizing its face down cards. Like your idea ability is basically to play a face down card every turn. So the if you put this in your deck and something that you and multiple things that you want to turn face up, then yeah, you can get value out of this. I just I'm I sort of see the Apex strategy at the moment in making all of your cards sort of disposable so that Apocalypse doesn't cost you that much and you can Apocalypse multiple times over the course of the game. I still see that as Apex's main plan. So does Apocalypse Apocalypse Assimilator, or the potential to do that, um, mean that you can Apocalypse more? I would say no, because when you Apocalypse, this turns face down and this costs five and only recovers things that you have apocalypsed well yeah so like the play pattern is that you build your rig you know you have your heartbeat endless hunger perhaps or better breakers um your wastelands and what have you and then you apocalypse and then you play a simulator the next turn and start recovering your cards right but then like you're using the one turn where your opponent is most vulnerable i mean you don't have to do it that turn right like you 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 only you only need to recover cards as you need them. But it's still a different pattern to Apex as I see it at the moment, right? Which is that you play cards that you don't really care about turning face down, so you can Apocalypse faster, rather than this card which lets you keep a more consistent and permanent rig by meaning, as you said before, that when you Apocalypse you don't lose cards forever. So we'll see whether... I think that turns out to be better. And I do think there's something there. I'm just not entirely sure what it is at this point. Yeah, and five is a lot to play a resource. So it's not an insignificant cost. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the runner side of Sovereign Sight. Thanks for being with us for episode 145. I've been Jesse Marshall here with Wilfie Horrig for The Winning Agenda. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook at The Winning Agenda. You can tweet us at Winning Agenda. Uh, and if you would like to throw a few dollars our way, you can head along to www.patreon.com slash thewinningagenda. Um, yeah, and if you would, if you have any feedback about this episode or things you'd like to include in our 150th episode uh, or anything um, you'd like us to talk about in the Blast Zone, should we ever do it again, please do get in touch. Yep, thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye.